Is it on? There we go. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan, that is, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, I should have read this beforehand. These are lots of hard words. Dizahab. <clears throat> it takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. This was after he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon and at Edrai, had defeated Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. East of the Jordan in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev, and along the coast to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. Lord, thank you for that reading, Hampton. We are a forch lucky to have Hampton read this Sunday. He runs a webpage titled Bible.org, and he struggled with the words himself, which is good news for all of us. Um, uh, to be fair to him, I did ask him to read when he walked in the door this morning, um, but partially that's because uh, at the moment I don't want to force anyone to come to church by asking them to do something they don't want to do. And so I print the stuff out and then rely on faith to provide people to read them. Um, so thank you, Hampton. As many of you know, that means we start uh, a shift in our reading this Sunday from, from the gospel that we had been doing uh, to life together to Pentecost Sunday and Trinity Sunday to the book of Deuteronomy, which means we've entered into the final book of the Torah together. Uh, four years ago... Um, I was struggling. One of the hardest parts when I became a pastor, not preaching every week wasn't so hard, as much as deciding what to preach on each week was. At my last church, we decided to do this project that was like the 12 scriptures project, and each the congregation got to nominate their 12 most important scriptures, and then we voted, and we finalized it down to 12. I, I would say this was not my idea. Um, I don't think this is the best way to approach scripture, but what I was struggled with was like, I don't know, when I get up there each Sunday, some, somehow my plea is this should be one of your 12 favorite scriptures, um, that we study it, we sit with it, that this maybe could be, in that case, even verses 1 through 8 at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, perhaps, which nobody listed or voted for in case you're wondering. Um, uh, and uh, but part of it is, is that we have these books and these challenges and we walk through them. And so five years ago or four years ago, I was, I was struggling. And I said, you know what I'll do is I'll just preach through each book of the Torah, one each summer. So we did Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then this summer we get to Deuteronomy. My joke was before we got to Leviticus is I'll pray for Jesus to return before then. Um, and God has called my bluff and here we are 
preaching through Leviticus. Now, before I had started this project, one of my friends said to me, he said, and we've, we've heard this before, he said, Matt, that's such a great idea, but you know there's, you, there's five re- or three reasons why most preachers would never do that. And I said, well, what are they? And he said, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, um, which made me think he didn't think it was that great of an idea because that makes up three-fifths of the idea. Um, better friend than, than not, making me think I had a good idea. Um, but we sort of started into that project, and what I didn't realize was once we had settled on that, the hardest part would be preaching what 10 to 14 scriptures from those books we would talk about. Um, and last year was, was the last year I'll really, I'm undecided if at the end we'll try to do a full, more detailed recap. Last year I tried to do as best of a, a detailed recap of the first three books as I could, and it felt like one of those things where it's like repeat the Gettysburg Address as fast as you can and, and not faint or something like that. Um, it was one of those sermons that was more uh, exercise for me in my memory and in my challenge of trying to bring all of it back together and tie it together that I thought this year we won't do as detailed of an exploration in it. Um, there's just so much to say about those first books. But this year we get to the book of Deuteronomy, which I think was the one I would have said I was looking forward to the most when I started this series. And I would have said Numbers was the one I was looking forward to the least. Numbers has become my favorite one um, uh, of the ones we've done so far. And so it'll be interesting to see where Deuteronomy goes. But Deuteronomy is this one that sort of ties up together this thing we call Torah and we talk Pentateuch. Uh, Elizabeth Atchemeyer calls the book of Deuteronomy the middle of the Old Testament, which I think is an interesting way to think about it. Now, this is just an Old Testament, um, so it is not the middle of the Old Testament, um, but it is, you know, part of the way through. But one of the things we talked about as we've been going through this series is there are rabbis that have this mindset that the whole thing of what Jews practice together is the Torah, the first five books and that the rest is commentary on them. And you kind of see this, particularly with the prophets, is what they play out is, is how, what is the correct way to interpret Torah? Are you doing Torah correctly if you give a tenth of your income but don't care for the widow and the orphan? This is a question that comes up in the later prophets. Interestingly enough, Jesus walks into the same problem himself. This sort of a rabbi, prophet, teacher. They ask him which one of the commands would he rate are the highest. And Jesus says the love of God and the love of neighbor. Tying together a scripture from Deuteronomy, the Shema, as we'll get to it. One of the most important Jewish scriptures. And the scripture from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that these two, and in Luke he says these two things are what everything else hangs on. So there are 618 commandments, I think, in the Old Testament, or commands, and Jesus says that if you put those two pegs in, the rest of them hang from that. It's an interpretive lens to sort of go through the Torah. And Jesus uh, we made this joke at House Church. Having been there and helped write it gets to say which two are the most important, um, being God himself. 
Um, but this is, this is the challenge of Deuteronomy. This is this last one, and it's meant to tie together all this, the questions that have been hanging, or at least give us a sense of where we are going and of what's next. As I mentioned, the first commandment comes from the book of Deuteronomy that Jesus references, which wouldn't have been rare for a Jew at his time or rare for a Jew today to say that that's the first commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Um, you are to love the Lord with all your God, heart, mind, and strength is common in that case. But as we've talked about, it, it's hard to say that, but, but Deuteronomy appears to be the second most quoted book of the New Testament. Now you can argue, there's, if you look up, it's hard to say what's quotes and what's allusions to a book. I've found it between second and fourth on all the rankings, and I think it depends on what you're counting as something or not. But one of the things that I thought was most important before we get into sort of a quick overview of each of the books and then where we start in Deuteronomy today was is that Jesus, uh, first off, that Israel is the life of one person. This nation we call Israel, this character we call Israel in the Torah is a person that is being cared for and guided by God in its communal identity. We have very short I have a hard time today as a 21st century millennial American of thinking even what happens to my children is really that much of an extension of what I am. And yet in an ancient mindset, what happens to your nation and to your people and to your land and place is much more an extension of who you are than we think of it today. For them to grasp that the story of Israel is the story of one person, of one nation, of one community guided under God's character is important to the story. It's not a bunch of individuals gathered together in a collective around one document, but it's a group of people that God has called into the world. That's the first point I think is important to keep to mind as we read the Torah. The second is that Jesus embodies the faithful Israelite himself. And so one of the clearest examples of this is that the, the Jews, they go out into the wilderness after being rescued, and they sin, and they stumble, and they fall into temptation, and spend 40 years wandering. Jesus, as the faithful one of Israel, walks through the waters of baptism himself. He is baptized, which is... Um, for us, an allusion to that Passover miracle of in which the Jews are rescued. And then he walks out into the wilderness himself and spends 40 days and 40 nights there, but does not succumb to temptation. Jesus, in his body and in his story, makes the story of a faithful Israel. There's one person who calls this story-interpreting story. That as we read the story of Jesus, and you'll see this in other places. For instance, what we'll do in the fall is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes up on a mountain, calls forth his disciples, and teaches. He expounds the Torah in the Sermon on the Mount. That's pretty much exactly what Hampton read for us, Moses doing this morning. Out on the plain here, he expounds the Torah to his people. Jesus is the faithful one who does this. And so while Israel has stumbled and failed, Jesus remains faithful. It's important to keep that in mind. So let us go to the beginning of this. I've, I had, we had Instagram as a church when we started this series, and I had fun making these little squares 
So indulge me this Sunday. We'll look at the little squares I made for each series. Um, this is the book of Genesis. And I realized that this one is a bit of an error because this one calls forth the creation of the world. Genesis 1 through 11 tells the story of the creation of all things and in some sense the lot of, human, of all human community. We all go to Adam and Eve. We all have eaten from the fruit of the tree um, in, the, in the garden. We have all fallen, as Paul says in Romans, that all of humanity is bound up in those first 11 chapters. What does God do with Noah? He wipes out all of humanity. Noah's chosen as one righteous in his generation, but it's unclear what the metric might have been at that time, except for that violence filled the land, and that Moses was one who didn't seem to be have succumbed to that. And so Moses and his family are part of these people called out at that moment. And God, in some sense, says after the fall, after the desecration of creation, and and. There was a joke last Sunday that Carla laughed at, but I don't know if anybody else did, about we're Christians, so bad news first, um, was that oftentimes Christians want to start with, don't you know that you're a fallen, broken creature? Which is true, but we forget that God originally blessed and created a good and true garden, that our, our original place in relation to God, in relation to the world, is one of good. Tov is what the Hebrew word is, that we come from goodness. We don't start with the fall. We start with the God who created and ordered a universe for us to live into. What happens is, is, is that violence sort of spins out of that act, and God sort of call or isn't calling yet, but sort of um, we hear the history of people as this grows fractious and evil. And what happens after the flood is as God sort of restarts again, it all happens again. We called this sort of section of Scripture, Genesis uh, uh, 1 through 11, sort of a prehistory. And so this image actually fits that pretty well. But what takes up the bulk of Genesis from 12 on is the story of Abraham and his family. We called it the scandal of particularity. God went from sort of massive solutions to this problem of human sinfulness to calling one man who's not named as righteous or that great or that interesting, but just one man to leave his father's house and to go out and to become a great nation, not for its own sake, but for the blessing of the world, for the blessing of the other nations. God calls out one and he begins this movement, this story of this character of Israel from there, Abraham and Sarai. And it's interesting that they come from, from barrenness, and they leave behind all that they had, as if they're going to trust in God alone. And related to this passage today, there's a couple of these passages. Now go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is that original Abrahamic calling to go out to the land, to become a great nation, to be blessed and then to be a blessing to everyone. Well, the book of Genesis ends, and they're a great nation, and they are a blessing to everyone. 
Not so. The book of Exodus ends where the people have found themselves caught in Egypt. The only land that Abraham's tribe has gained at the time of the end of the book of Genesis is the land of, of, that he is buried in, the land that his wife is buried in. His family at this time, I didn't do the math, uh, probably 56 people, maybe a little bit bigger, and they go and they live in Egypt in a great nation. They are not a great nation yet. So the book of Genesis ends with this question of, is God going to fulfill these promises? Is Abraham going to become this thing that God has promised that he would be? And so the book of Exodus starts, and the people are in Egypt, and things seem to be going well for about a chapter, (laughs) not even that long. And the Pharaoh, as they grow in number, becomes um, angered at them, tries to make them... um, do labor and harsh concerns, makes them slaves. And it turns out in this way that they are trapped in Egypt. They are unable to get forth. And one of the most amazing passages of Scripture, um, it says that then God heard their cries and remembered his promise. That these people in agony and slavery, this person whom God has promised to Israel, is this one trapped in in Egypt, and God's, the cries arise to his ears, and he remembers his promise. So the book of Exodus starts there, and what happens is, is God calls forth Moses, who takes up uh, the rest of the Torah. This is Moses who speaks all of Deuteronomy, which I would say is, is in some sense a good news for preachers. Jesus has this ability to give short sermons that are very memorable, and people go, why does my pastor go so long? Um, Moses is more like us. He goes on for about 33 chapters in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, Praise be to God. Um, He calls forth Moses, this one who also really doesn't have much of a pedigree to do this. He says he's not much of a speaker, which we know he kind of gets cured by the time he gets to Deuteronomy too. But he comes and he bleeds forth the people out of Egypt. And in one of my favorite sermons in the whole series, we talked about the Passover and that journey through, the, through the, the sea, and it's there that we find that this is Easter in the way, this is Easter before Easter. I called it Easter in July, I think, is when we got to that passage. Because in Jesus' death and resurrection, we too, in baptism, go into the waters and are freed from slavery, but not from slavery to Pharaoh, but from slavery to sin and death and set free into new life. This is the story of Passover, that God brings his people out, brings them through the waters, and rescues them. The quote on the back of the bulletin, I think has been with us since we, every Sunday when we started this this series, but God who is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having previously raised Israel out of Egypt. It's a jammed pack sentence of meaning there god is the one who raised jesus from the dead having previously raised israel out of egypt and so in my mind i thought exodus not too hard but it turns out like the whole second half of exodus is not in either the ten commandments or the the prince of egypt those are two movies Um, that only covers like less than half of the book and what i found is in the second half of exodus are two important sort of scenes One is God begins to sort of covenant with these people. 
They're his chosen ones. He's beginning to form them into the people that will be a blessing to a nation. And the second thing is how difficult it is for these people to recover from slavery. That they, when Moses goes up on the mountain to sort of receive this covenant, in the meantime, make for themselves gods they can see and begin to worship them. Betrayal runs deep in this story. And God wants to swear off the people, but what happens in that scene is that Moses, he's revealed to Moses as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving inequity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the inequity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That God is revealed at this moment on the mountain to these people as a God of steadfast love, of faithfulness, of one who will remain with them. This part of the book of Exodus names the character of God in a way that we haven't seen yet in this story. And so the book of Exodus ends when God has renewed his covenant with his people and they uh, make uh, a tabernacle for which this holy fire to dwell, and Moses goes to enter in, but he cannot enter into it, which brings us to the book of Leviticus. Look at those two lovely goats. Neither one of them makes it. Um, one is set loose into the wilderness, the other is slaughtered. Um, I always love that picture because it reminds me of like, oh, they are cute. What a bummer. Um, uh, this, uh, th that's a, uh, you had to be here. Um, the, the book of Leviticus begins to sort of say, how will these people be with this God who is their particular God, who is a holy and consuming fire, who is this sort of unchangeable, immutable thing that is going to reside in their camp. And rightfully so, the people are terrified of this of this thing residing so close to them. And Leviticus, in most of its book, gives them the laws and the reasons and how first that they are going to worship this God and how second the people are supposed to be this God, be with this God and model him to the world. To be holy as he is holy is one of those calls. We call it the book of Leviticus because it deals with the Levites predominantly. Um, the, joy, the Jews call it Varikra, which is the third Hebrew word up there, uh, and it's God spoke to them from the tent of meeting. Actually, Chris made us this awesome thing, which has the Hebrew titles of the books that come from near the first words. Um, so Genesis, in the beginning, beginning. Uh, Exodus, these are the names. Um, Leviticus, uh, and the Lord spoke, Vaikra, uh, to him. Numbers, in the wilderness, and uh, Deuteronomy, words. These are the words that... Moses says to them on the plane. And so the people in the book of Leviticus find out what it is to reside with God. But as I said, that Moses couldn't enter the tent at the end of the book of Exodus, whereas at the beginning of the book of Numbers, Moses is in the tent hearing from God. It's as if the whole book of Leviticus sort of fills this gap and so that they can hear from God in the temple. It's the sacrificial system and this built thing that allows them to come into God's presence. In Numbers, it's this, like I said, it was my favorite, so uh, I'll try to keep it 
short here, uh, is it, it's this, this, this amazing story of first God's faithfulness to preserve them through this, his joy to give them the promised land, their denial of that gift because they see the challenges are too great, and then God's sort of um, therapy in healing them from what it was like to be slaves in Egypt. I think this one, the character of Israel, stands the most clear for us today in two ways. One, in that we, too, are people who have been in slavery. And when we get freed from sin or from death by God and, and these things that have pulled us down, half the time we go, you know, back in that land, we had garlic. Um, back when I lived in slavery and depression and, and it enmeshed in this thing, at least I had some comfort from it. As God has brought us out and healed us and given us new life, we too, like them, turn backwards. And it was, it was, I forget who asked it, but they said, how did the Jews rebel this many times? And it's like it's 40 years and they rebel like four times, which like it's been like a year and 40 times. Like um, we're a little hard on them. Um, uh, 40 years in the wilderness wandering, four times are preserved for us of these big rebellions. Um, surely we could have some more sympathy for them. But the way that we sort of looked at this was that there was this wilderness generation uh, at the top, the Exodus generation that's brought to the wilderness. These are timelines, if you weren't here. Um, and the timeline um, starts with the birth of a new generation after they refuse to go into the land. And so in the box is the overlap between the last generation and the new generation. And this is the birth of the new generation that is to go into the promised land. And this story is about, for us, how we too are the Exodus generation. We are people who have been rescued from sin and slavery and death and brought out into a new land, and yet we want to go back sometimes. And yet, because of what God has done, we also have ourselves on this new timeline this new kingdom, this new way of being. We exist in the box, as I would say, um, in between this need to understand our past and between this calling into the new land and into the new future. And so Deuteronomy begins at the edge of this place. It begins where these people are about to hear about what it means to enter the promised land. And Moses is going to expound the law to them. He's going to teach them this thing again. And it's going to be renewed in a covenant of blessing and in life. There's so much more to say. I want to end with um, th where the passage that Hampton read for us today is. It says two things. It was time for them... Uh, turn your face, move yourselves on, come up to the highland of the Amorites and to all the neighbors on the steppe and the highland of the foothills in the Negev on the seacoast of Lebanon. See, I put this country before you. Come take possession of your country that Yahweh swore to your ancestors. Going back to Abraham, You'll have a land and you will be a great nation. God has set that before them. 
And God is one who makes promises and keeps them. The last thing that I want to say is that we live in a world where promises are rarely made. The one promise we are called to make and keep, the, the promise of, of marriage and fidelity, has become more optional than not. And we live in a world in such that I think it was a parenting book I was reading not long ago, like two years ago, but uh, that said, try not to make promises to your children because invariably you won't be able to keep them. And we live in a world in which promises are broken, and so much so that promises have little or no meaning. And so what does it mean that God has this promised land, this gift of grace that he is going to bestow upon them? That God is one who keeps his promises. And so it furs us to trust and to have joy in this. That in a world without promises, we belong to a God who does. And not only that, in participation with this God, we too can create a communal world where promises are made and kept. If we talk about what would be a witness to the world today, it would be a world that has not demand, uh, abandoned promises and the hope of a future promise to us, but one that believes even more deeply in it. And so it is for us to hear the promise of God, to go into the land, or to stand at the edge of the land, and to hear from Moses for the next 10 weeks on what it is like to be entering into the land that God has prepared for us. Let us pray. God, you have given us Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, beginning names, called wilderness and words to point us in the direction of your promised life for us. To know that we've been called, not because of anything great about us, but because you are a God who calls. And our calling to be great is not only for our sake, but for the nations around us that all the families of the earth may be blessed through us. And God, you have preserved for us stories that show how often we can fail at it and that you are a God of unfailing love, of forgiveness and mercy and faith.